it, Red Arms. Give it your all. We'll drink the wine till the cup is dry and kiss the girls and then the cry and toss the dice until we fly and dance with Jack of the Shadows. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Tales of Red Arm. I'm your host, Justin, and today we're jumping into chapter 46, To Come Out of the Shadow. And it's a fairly long one, not quite as long as the other chapter. We just did chapter 45, but it's pretty close. It's like right on the, right on the tip. Um, but just for a quick recap, um, the very end of the last chapter was essentially... Random company sneaking into High Lord Tarax Manor, and I should say Occupied Manor, and uh, essentially Rand kills High Lord Tarax. They kill a bunch of soldiers and then get out of Dodge as fast as possible. And pretty sure they're being pursued or going to be pursued as the front guards that are in front of the house go full on what's going on in the house so they head out and they have the horn they have the dagger seems to be great but Rand's still thinking about Egwene um so now in chapter 46 we're going to Nynaeve's perspective and it's going to be a kind of a triple perspective for this chapter or quadruple actually um which is always fun to start hopping but you know it gets this way a lot when you get close to the end of the book because a lot more people are, and their stories are coming to a head at some point in some shape or form. But so essentially, Nynaeve and company, um, which would be Elaine and Min, and in this case also Sita, um, are heading to the house slash buildings where the Demane are at, and because the day, the time the hustle and bustle of the town is getting a little bit more filled, I guess. And, uh, Elaine's not sure what's going on, but they notice that the golden Hawk clutching the lightning, you know, rippling in the wind, a lot's going on over there. It's high Lord Turok's manor. Um, but then he's just like, eh, nothing to do with us. And men's like, well, you hope <laughs> I do as well. She heads ahead to get inside of the, the, the I guess, not really, I, I, it's not really a, a house. It's more like a group of houses, so like a community housing area uh, where the Demani are kept. And she heads on in first. And Nynaeve, you know, goes to Sita, or turns to Sita as they're walking is like, you know, if you, we know you want to make this as safe as us. So, yeah. And the Shan Shan woman's like, yeah, I, I, I do. I will cause you no trouble. So they go up the stairs and a Suldam and a Demane appear at the top of the stairs looking down as they went up. And Nynaeve quickly glances to make sure the one collared is not Egwene. But Nynaeve doesn't look at them again because it's not. So she uses the item to keep Sita close by. And if the Demai sensed the ability to channel in one of them, she would think it was Sita. But she's like, I'm sweating and it's trickling down my spine. You know, it's, it's, this is really intense. And no one's paying them attention more than she's giving them. And all they see is a dress with lightning panels and a gray dress. And they're linked by silver length of an item. It's just another leash holder with a leashed one. And a local girl carrying a bundle behind them. So Nynaeve pushes open the door and they go inside. And then there's some, whatever that excitement behind, you know, Turek's banner doesn't really go into this building. So apparently the Suldam and Demane were not whipped into a frenzy yet, as it's not really known what's going on either. So... <laughs> Essentially, there's only move, women moving around in this entry hall. And you can tell who they are about the way they dress. There's three Demane in gray dresses and a Suldam wearing the bracelets. Um, 
Two women in dresses paneled with fork lightning are talking, and three cross the hall alone. Four look like men, just plain dark woolens, and go around with trays, so you can tell they're servants. Um, men's at the other side of the entry hall, and they go in. She glances at them once, and then heads in deeper, so Nynaeve just you know, guides Sita down the hall towards uh, men, and Elaine's following along. I did find it odd that no one thought to look at like Nanny even be like, she doesn't look familiar because you have to think that even though there might be a few sold on here, there's to some extent, there is a small number of them compared to their home country. So you'd imagine that in some shape or form, they would be, probably familiar with each other at least on the very basic level like they'd see somebody be like hey i know that person i may or may not like them i may or may not you know have much in common with them but i know they're a suldam and nynaeve i think she's still wearing her braid so don't think that's a very common thing in shan shan at least to the extent that she does it but maybe it is but nobody even like thinks twice they just see leash one and leash holder and that's it so i think it's a little weird but i suppose it's possible depending on how quickly they're cutting through things so she's moving sita around so no one gets a good look at her or even better a question um so sita's just looking at her toes and she doesn't need much urging so she's pretty much would have been running if she wasn't restrained by the leash so Min, you know, takes the narrow stairs that spiral upwards. So you can go there going to the second floor. And Nynaeve pushes Sita up ahead of her. Oh, past the second, past the third, and stopping at the fourth floor. The ceilings are pretty low. The halls are empty. So you can tell these are essentially the kennels, I guess, would be the, a, kind of a term you could use for them. And it's pretty quiet, with the exception of weeping, soft weeping. And it kind of gives it kind of an eerie feel. And Elaine's like, oh, this place feels... And he's like, yeah, it does. Obviously not happy about it. But she glares at Sita, who keeps her face down. And, you know, the pallor of fear makes the Sean Chan's woman's skin seem a little paler than it is normally. So, very, very much more deathly than the albino probably would be. <laughs> So Min just opens the door and goes in, and they follow in. And it's a couple small rooms made by rough wooden walls, narrow passageway uh, with windows. And they head on inside and then turn to the last door on the right and push in. And there's a slender, dark-haired girl in gray sitting at a small table with her head resting on folded arms. But even before she looked up, Nynaeve knew it was Egwene because there's a ribbon of shining metal running from the silver collar around Egwene's neck to a bracelet hanging on a peg on the wall. And Egwene's eyes get really wide at the sight of them, and her mouth works silently. And Elaine closes the door, and Egwene gives kind of a sudden giggle, and then presses her hands to her mouth to stifle it. And then, you know, it's a very tiny room. It's a lot of them crowded into it. And she's like, oh no, I'm not dreaming. Because if I was dreaming, you'd be Rand and Galad on tall stallions. I have been dreaming. I thought Rand was here. I couldn't see him, but I thought... Like, I don't know why you think you, you think he's here if you didn't see him. I mean, he saw you, but you weren't sure. But you're like, I think I saw him or I didn't see him, but I think he's here with no basis to know why he would be here. So that's weird. Um, but men's like, well, if you, if you prefer them, we can uh, leave. And they're like, oh, no, 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 you're all beautiful. The most beautiful things I've ever seen. And how did you, where'd you guys come from? How did you all get here? You know, all the questions you'd expect. And it's like, oh, the dress, the, the item, who is? And then she squeaks. It's like, that's Sita. And how, you know, how did you do that? <laughs> and then he barely recognized her voice. And she's like, I like to put her in a pot of boiling water. Sita had her eyes squeezed shut and hands clutched her skirt. She's just trembling like crazy. And Lane's like, what have they done to you? What could make you want to do something like that to somebody? And Egwene doesn't take her eyes off of Sita and is like, well, I'd like to make her feel it the way she did to me. Made me feel like I was neck deep in and then she shudders, you know. 
you know what it's like to wear one of these, Elaine. You don't know what they can do to you. And I can never decide whether Sita is worse than Rena, but they're all hateful. And then he's like, I think I know. And she could feel Sita's skin, you know, soaking with sweat. The cold tremors that shake her limbs. And the yellow-haired Shan-Chan, Sita, is just terrified. Absolutely terrified. And it's all she can really do just to make Sita's terrors come true right then and there. And Egwene's like, can you take this off for me, touching the collar? It's like, you must be able to if you can put that one on. And he just channels a pinpoint trickle. And the collar falls off of Egwene's neck. Because obviously, that collar provides plenty of anger. And if it hadn't, Sita's fear, the knowledge of how deserved it truly was, you know, pretty much gives her the knowledge that she wants to do with the man. Pretty much just or to the woman, um, pretty much gives her enough anger to channel. So the collar springs away and uh, falls away from Egwene's throat, and, you know, a little look of wonder, and Egwene touches her neck, and then Ivy's like, hey, put my dress on and my coat. So Elaine was already unbundling the clothes on the bed, and he's like, we will walk out of here, and no one will even notice you. And she considered holding the contact with the sidearm, but she's certainly angry enough, but Despite it feeling wonderful, she reluctantly had to let it go. This is the place in Falm where there's no chance of Soldam and Damani coming in to investigate if they sent someone channeling, but they would definitely do so if Damani saw a woman they she thought was a Soldam with a glow channeling around her. It's like, I don't know if why you aren't gone already, alone here. Even if you couldn't figure out how to take the thing off, you could have just picked it up and run. And this shows a little ignorance, which when it comes to the Shan Shan, there's quite a bit of it. Considering they're kind of new to the shores, not many people know all the details about them. And even then, it's kind of a, a well-kept secret, except for those who are Soldam and Damane. And you don't exactly have those guys blathering their secrets around, because obviously they wouldn't work as well. Um, so, Min and Elaine are trying to help her change really quick, but Egwene's explaining about the moving of the bracelet from the Soldam left it, and how channeling makes her sick, and Unless the Soldam wore the bracelet. And then that morning she discovered the collar could be opened without the power. And that touching the catch with the intention of opening it made her hand not into uselessness. She could touch it as much as she wanted, so as long as she did not think of undoing the catch. The mirrors hinted that, though. You know, that ends tor terribly great. You know, wonderful. And I need to kind of feel sick herself. And the bracelet that she's wearing makes her sick. And it's just horrible. She wants it off her wrist. But before she even knew more about Idom, but perhaps she learned something that would make her feel soiled. Probably forever after wearing it. So she takes off the silver cuff and pull it loose and snap it closed and hang it on one of the pegs. And she's like, well, don't think you can shout for help now. I'll make you wish you were never born if you open your mouth. And I don't need that bloody thing. <gasps> Nynaeve said it swear. And Sita's like, but you don't mean to leave me here with it. You cannot tie me, gag me. I can't give an alarm, please. And Egwene's like, ha, leave it on her. She won't call for help, even without a gag. You'd better hope whoever finds you here will remove the idom and keep your little secret, Sita. Your dirty secret, isn't it? And Lynn's like, what are you talking about? And Egwene's like, I thought of for a long time, but thinking was all I could do when they left me here. And this is the important information, just to keep it in context. Soldam claim they develop an affinity after a few years. Most of them can tell when a woman is channeling, whether they're leashed to her or not. I wasn't sure, but Sita proves it. Ooh, what does this mean? What could this mean? We're about to find out. And Elaine's like, prove what? And her eyes widen in realization. And Egwene's just like, naive. Idom only work on women who can channel. Don't you see? Soldam can channel the same as Damani. Of course, Sita groans through her teeth, you know, shaking her head in violent denial. Egwene continues, A Suldam would die before admitting she could channel, even if she knew, and they never train the ability, so they cannot do anything with it. But they can channel. Kind of absolutely mind-breaking for the Shan-Shan, who... Probably you're not aware of this because it would tear everything that they have apart. 
So you, you'd think that there would be an easy way to fix this. You know, walk out with some demonic. Show up to a Suldam, or not a Suldam, show up to a Sean Chan party, like, for parlay, and be like, yo, what do we got here? And then they pretty much turn on all the Suldam, and, you know, it becomes a bloodbath. But that would be what a smart person would probably think about doing. Um, and Min's like, well, I said the collar wouldn't work on her, or it shouldn't have worked on her. And she finishes up the buttons on Egwene's back. And she's like, well, any woman who couldn't channel would have been able to beat you silly while you tried to control her with it. And he's like, well, how can that be? I thought the Sean Shan put leashes on any woman who could channel. Yeah, she's catching on. And then uh, this part's very, very important. All of those they find, Egwene told her, but those they can find are like you and me and Elaine. We were born with it, ready to channel whether anyone taught us or not. But what about Shanshan girls who aren't born with the ability, but who could be taught? Not just any woman can become a, a leash holder. Rena thought she was being friendly telling me about it. It is apparently a feast day in Shanshan villages when the Soldom come to test the girls. They want to find any like you and me and leash them, but they all let all the others put on the bracelet and see if they can feel the poor woman in the collar feels. Those who are or those who can are taken away to be trained as Suldam. They are the woman who could be taught. And Sita's moaning under her breath, no, 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 just over and over again. And Elaine's like, I know she's horrible, but I feel as if I should help her somehow. She could be one of our sisters. Only the Shan shouldn't have twisted it all. And he's like, about to say, there's not a whole lot to work. And the door opens up. And Rena's like, what is going on here? Stepping into the room. An audience? She stares at Nynaeve, hands on hips. I never gave permission for anyone else to link with my pet, Thule. I don't even know who you... See, somebody finally picks it up, like, oh, who are you? Why are you here? And her eyes fall on Egwene, and Egwene's wearing Nynaeve's dress instead of Demonic Grey. Egwene with no collar around her throat. And her eyes grew big as saucers, and she never had a chance to yell. Before anyone could really move, keep in mind, this is a very small room with a lot of people in it. Three was busy. There's currently, I think, what, five people in this room? <laughs> so, Egwene snatches up the pitcher, the washstand, and just smacks it right into Rena's midriff. And, of course, the pitcher shatters, and the Soldom loses all her breath. And I'm thinking, like, wouldn't a shattering of a pitcher or anything ceramic or any anything, really, plate-wise or otherwise, draw some attention, don't you think? But either way... Rena goes doubling over, gurgling and gasping. And as she falls, Egwene leaps on her with a snarl and just shoving her flat, grabbing the collar on the floor and just snaps it around her neck. And then with one jerk on the silver lease, Egwene pulls the bracelet from the peg and fits it on her own wrist. And her lips are pulled back in a snarl and her eyes are fixed on Rena's face with a terrible concentration. And she's kneeling on the, the Soldom's shoulders. She pressed both handers over the woman's mouth, and Rena just gives a tremendous convulsion, and her eyes bulge on her face. And there's hoarse sounds coming from her throat, screams held back by Egwene's hand, and her kneels, heels drumming on the floor. Which, again, people below would be like, what is this noise? Maybe? Maybe it could be them punishing a demani. But also, Soldom don't go too overboard with their... Uh, Demane because of how valuable they are. And he's like, stop it, Egwene. She pulls her off. He's like, stop it. This is what you want. And Rena just lays there, you know, gray face panting, staring wildly at the ceiling. And Egwene throws herself against Nynaeve, sobbing. And she's like, she hurt me, Nynaeve. She hurt me. Every one of them did. They all hurt me and hurt me until I did what they wanted them to do. I hate them. I hate them for hurting me. And I hate them because I couldn't stop them from making me do what they wanted. And he was like, I know, I know. And she's got that kind of motherliness. She's like, it's all right to hate them. They deserve it. But this isn't the place to make, to let them make you like they are. And Sita's hands are pressed against her face. Rena touched the collar on her throat, disbelieving with a shaking head. And Egwene brushes her tears away. And she's like, I'm not, I'm not like them. And she pretty much claws the bracelet off her wrist and throws it down. It's like, I'm not, but I wish I could kill them. Min's like, they deserve it. And she's staring at them. And I'm thinking like, Min, 
You are exactly notorious for carrying weapons. This would be very easy. But at the same time, you do more damage by not killing them. <laughs> this random gem out of nowhere. Elaine's like, Rand would kill someone who did a thing like that. And she kind of seems to like steal herself. And he's like, I'm sure he would. And now he's like, well, perhaps they do. And perhaps he would. But men often mistake revenge and killing for justice. They seldom have the stomach for justice. Now, out of context, I would say this is false. In, in the if you if you were covering the entire male sphere, um, in context where she is referencing after this, it does kind of make sense. But I wouldn't say it applies to everyone, even in the Wheel of Time world. Um, just due to the fact that she has a very, and I might vehemently point out this point, very little experience outside of her own village about what men are like. She's been to very few places, more than anyone else in her village, probably, but she's been to very few places. And in all of those places, she hasn't come across people like Lord Agamar was polite and kind and seems to be a very just Lord. Um, the other Sean, uh, not Sean Chan, uh, the other Shinarans seem to be the same way. They hold women in high regard. There's a lot of men that, that she sees and they're not like this. So she's playing purely off of what she's experienced as she sat in judgment at the women's circle. That's her experience. And that's what she's basing everything off of. But in almost every other direction, it's been completely different than what she's had to experience. I mean, I would dare say she's experienced more women that way, but it's a common thing in the story about men versus women. And the men think a certain way of women, women think a certain way of men. And I find it absolutely humorous and hilarious because I think it was well done and it's consistent throughout the entire series. It's, it's never one way or the other. Um, but based off of her actual experience at the women's circle and, and being the wisdom, you know, and he goes on to say like, you know, men would come before them thinking women might give them a better hearing than the men of the village council. So basically the men go to the women's circle because the men at the village council denied them. And that's the part where I think it's kind of crazy that she would think this because if the village council came to the same conclusion, I might add before the women's circle did, then it's not all men that have this concept to, to be fair. It does say seldom and it also says often. So men often mistake revenge and killing for justice and they seldom have the stomach for justice. So there is context. It's not some off-the-wall random comment. But I would agree that a lot of men in this world probably would have those kind of concepts about justice or whatever. Because just how they grew up, what culture they grew up in, a whole bunch of things. There's a lot, Human beings are very complex while also being extremely simple. But She's like, well, men always thought that they could sway the decision with eloquence or pleas for mercy. The women's circle gave mercy where it's deserved, but justice always. And it was the wisdom who pronounced it. So she ends up picking, Nanive picks up the bracelet and that Egwene had discarded and closed it. And she, you know, says, I would free every woman here if I could and destroy every last one of these. But since I can't, so she puts the bracelet over the same peg that held the other one and then addresses herself to the soldat. It's like, and she's thinking like, yeah, not leash holders anymore. It's like, well, perhaps if you were very quiet, you'll be left alone here long enough to manage to remove the collars. The wheel weaves as the wheel wills. And it may be that you've done enough good to counterbalance the evil you've done enough that you will be allowed to remove them. But if not, you'll be found eventually. I think that whoever finds you will ask a great many questions before they remove those collars. And I think perhaps you will learn at first hand the life you have given to other women. That is justice. Now, I would agree. Killing would be too simple. 
but this would definitely throw a wrench in the works. And of course, you know how Rena and Sita feel about this. Rena wears a fixed state of aura on her face, and Sita's shoulders shook as she sobbed into her hands. And I'm thinking, like, if I was to be found, if I was to be found, I would totally rat every single person out. I'd be like, every last one of the Soldom are like this. Like, when they when they take me before the Empress or whatever, or whoever's in power, I'd be like, every last one of them. Every last one of them. And I would just dig out the dirt. Because I'm probably going to either die or live a life of servitude, and in that case, you might as well die. So, doing that to a person who's just like you? Nah, I'm, I'm good, fam. <laughs> I'm good. And... So, Nynaeve's just like, it is justice. It is. Again, I agree. Um, early on, Nynaeve, this is one of the few areas I really liked her. Um, she's kind of a brat in a lot of ways, but this is one of the things I, I did really enjoy Nynaeve. I enjoy her a lot more later on by a long shot, but that's because she makes a lot of really smart decisions while a lot of other people don't make very good decisions. Um... So then they, you know, just walk out of the room and Nynaeve, you know, was like, well, if this, she has the soul dom dressed to think that nobody's going to pay attention to them or anything. And she, she just cannot wait to change to something else. And she's like, the dirtiest rag would feel cleaner on her skin. So the girls are silent, walking close behind her until they get out to the cobblestone street. And she doesn't even know if it was what she had done or the fear someone might stop them, but. It's like, well, maybe they would have felt better if she had let them work themselves up to cutting the women's throats. I mean, which technically would be justice, but more effective justice is what they left out. And Gwen's like, we're going to need horses. I know the stable where they took Bella, but I don't think we can get to her. And I was like, well, we're going to have to leave Bella here. We're leaving by ship. And Min's like, uh, where is everyone? And then you just realize, like, whoa, the street's empty. Crowds are gone. Nowhere to be seen. Every shop and window was shuttered tight. But then you see from the harbor is a formation of Shan Shan soldiers, about a hundred or more, in ordered ranks with an officer at their head and his painted armor. They're still halfway down the street from the women, but they marching up with a grim, implacable step. And it seemed to Nynaeve that every eye was fixed on her. She's like, that's ridiculous. I can't see those eyes inside those helmets, and if anybody had given alarm, it'd be behind us. She stops... And then Min's like, there are more behind us. And Nynaeve can hear those boots now. And he's like, I don't know which will reach us first. And Nynaeve's like, breathing. Like, well, there's nothing to do with us. So she looks beyond the approaching soldiers to the harbor that has all the tall, boxy Shan Chan ships. And she can't really make out the spray. And she prays it's still there and ready to throw them. And she's like, well, we'll walk, we'll walk right past them. And Elaine's like, well, what did... What if they want you to join them? You are wearing that dress if they start asking questions. And it's, this is where it gets a little chaotic. And I feel like this could have been handled better. Like, what if what if they want to join? And Gray's like, well, I'm not going to go back. I'll die first. Let me show them what they've taught me. And on Neve's eye, a golden nimbus suddenly seemed to surround her. <sighs> And then, no, and it's too late. The roar like thunder, the street under the first ranks of Sean Chan erupted. Dirt and cobblestone, armored men thrown aside like a spray from a fountain. Still glowing, she spun around to step the street. The thunderous roar was repeated, and the dirt rains down on the women. Shouting, Sean Chan shoulders. Wow, say that one ten times fast. <laughs> ten times fast. Shouting, Sean Chan shoulders. Yeah, shouting, Sean Chan soldiers. Scattered. Ooh, that's even better. Shouting, Shan Shan soldiers scattered. Whew. Man, Robert Jordan, why'd you do that dirty to me? Sheesh. But they scattered in good order to shelter in alleys and behind stoops. In moments, they were all out of, the, out of sight, except for those who lay around with two large holes in Martin Street. Now, I like this funny. It's like, the Shan Shan are very, like, proud and strong and serious and grim when they have the one power on their side. But when it's not on their side, they're like, ah, and cockroaches. 
Which, I mean, is a reasonable response because anybody who's not hiding is probably dead. And of course, Nynaeve's like, really? And some of the ones stirring feebly, but there's moans drifting in the street. You know, people are injured. And I was like, you fool! He's <laughs> like, we're trying not to attract attention. I was like, no chance of that now. So, you know, they're hoping they can manage to get their way around the soldiers to the harbor, through the alleys. And the Damani must know, too. You know, at least now. They couldn't have missed that. Egwene's like, I won't go back to the collar. I won't. And this is where Egwene gets completely unreasonable. Not that she wasn't completely reasonable to begin with in this part, but this is where it gets worse. And Min's like, look out. I'm like, nobody, you know, feel the one power being used. You know, it's kind of a thing that channelers can do. And the one person who here is not a channeler is the one who calls it out. And there's this shrill whine, a fireball as big as a horse arcs over the rooftops from the Demon the Soldam and Demani territory and begins to fall directly towards them. And then he's like, run! And, you know, like D&D &D and like roll for fireballs, essentially what just happened. And she throws herself out of the way into the nearest alleyway between some sh uh, shuttered shops. She lands kind of awkwardly on her stomach, losing half of the breath she had in her, and then the fireball hits and just hot wind blows down the hall, the alleyway. So she gulps air, rolls on her back, and just looks at the street. And pretty much the cobblestones where they had been standing were chipped, cracked, blackened, circled ten paces across. Like, it's it's a pretty good-sized thing. Elaine's crouching behind another alley on the other side of the street. Minute away, and there's no sign. And she claps her mouth shut with her hand in horror. And, you know, it's like, Elaine's like, oh, and daughter heir, of course, Elaine, uh, shakes her head violently and pointing down the street. They had gone that way. So then he was like, oh, they didn't get hit by that fireball. And then that relief turns to a growl and she's like, oh, fool, we would have gotten by them. And then, you know, she's not got a whole lot of time for recrimination. So she scoots to the corner and peers cautiously around the edge of the building. And then a head sized fireball flashed down the street toward her. And she leaped back just before it explodes against the corner where her head had been throwing stone chips everywhere. And she gets really angry. <laughs> it's like, how dare you? And grabs the one power before she's aware of it. And lightning flashes out of the sky, striking somewhere on the street with a crash near the origin of the fireball. And another jagged bolt split the sky. And then she's running down the alleyway. And behind her, lightning's lance towards the mouth of the alleyway. And of course, her last thoughts of this chapter is, if Doman doesn't have that ship waiting, I'll light. Let us all reach it safely. And now we're going to ship, ironically, to Bail Doman, who is jerking erect as lightning strikes across the slight gray sky and hitting somewhere in the town again and again. And he's like, there's no big, there do no be enough clouds for that. And then something rumbles along up in the town and a fireball or a ball of fire smashes under a rooftop just above the docks, throwing splintered slates into the wide arcs. The docks have been emptied for a while by people, except for a few Shanshan, but that those ones run around wildly, drawing swords and shouting. And a man appeared from one of the warehouses with a grom at his side, running to keep up with the beasts' long leaps as they vanished in one of the streets heading up from the water. And then one of the crewmates from Doman's ship jumps for an axe, swings it high over the mooring cable, and in two strides, Doman seizes the upraised axe with one hand and the man's throat with the other, He's like, spray do stay until I do sail, sail, Edwin Cole. I'm pretty sure this is the one and only time Edwin Cole is ever mentioned in this entire 15 book series. <laughs> but it works. It's cool that he, there's a little bit of immersion there. And Yarm's like, but they're going mad, Captain. And there's explosions happening and rumbling across the, har the harbor. And gulls screaming in circles, lightning flickered again, crashing to earth inside of foam. It's like, the Demone will kill us all. Let us go while they're busy killing one another. They will never notice till we are gone. And Doma's like, I did give my word. He wrenches the axe from Cole's hand and, oh, sorry, there's a second one right there. <laughs> Two times, sorry, the whole time. Throws it clattering under the deck. He's like, I did give my word. He's like, hurry, woman. He thinks, you know, I said I or whatever you be, hurry. And now we're switching 
again. Number three of four. Jeffrem Bornhold, who's eyeing the lightning flashing over Fom and, you know, dismissing it. He's like, some huge flying creature. It's a rockin' or a toe rockin'. It doesn't really state which one it could be or which one it is, but it could be one of those, either one of them. Uh, rockin's just your standard scout. Toe rockin's like a troop transport, like small groups, squads and stuff. So one's bigger than the other. Um, and pretty much they're fl flying around wildly to avoid getting hit by lightning. And if it were a storm, it would hinder the Shanshan as much as it did him. And around him is nearly just treeless hills, you know, a couple with random sparse thickets. Um, they hide the town from him, him from it. But his thousand men lay spread out to either side of him, one long mounted rank rippling along the hollows between the hills. The cold wind tosses their cloaks back, flaps the banner at his side, and the wavy raid, golden son of the children of the light. And he turns to Bayar and says, Go now, Bayar. The gaunt-faced man hesitated, and then Bornhold put a snap in his voice. It's like, I said, go, child Bayar. Bayar touched his hand to heart and bowed, as you command, my lord captain. He turns his horse away, all the, every line of him shouting reluctance. But Bornhold puts Bayer out of his mind. He, you know, he had to do there, or he, he had done what he could there. Just raising his voice, and he's like, "The legion will advance at a walk." And then there's a thousand saddles creaking along this long line of white cloaked men that start moving towards Falm. It's a very brief, but it's there. Number four. Rand peers around a corner at some approaching Shan Shan, then ducks back into the alleyway between stables with a grimace. They'd be here soon. There's blood crusted on his cheek, cuts from Turak burned, but nothing to be done for now. Lightning flashes across the sky again. He feels the rumble. It plummets through his boot. He's like, what in the name of the light is happening? Ingtar's like, close. The Horn of Valir must be saved, Rand. And... Despite the Shan Shan and despite lightning, strange explosions down out of town proper, he pretty much seems preoccupied with his own thoughts. Matt and Perrin and Huron were down at the other end of the alley, watching another Shan Shan patrol. The place where they had left the horses was pretty close now, if they could just get to it. And Rand mutters about Egwene, like, she's in trouble. And this is a very interesting and probably really important part, you know. There's an odd feeling in his head, as if pieces of his life were in danger. Egwene was one piece, one thread of the cord that made his life. But there were others, and he could feel them threatened. Down there, in Falm. And if any of those threads were destroyed, his life would never be complete. The way it was meant to be. He did not understand it, but the feeling was sure and certain. Now, I've tried to wreck my brain about this. The only thing I can really explain it, or I guess the only way I could explain it, would be Taviran. He is a Taviran, and he somehow senses his own Taviranness, I guess. Or maybe it's Matt and Perrin rubbing it off back onto him. And he feels it because he's close to them and they're all Taviran. But he's worried about Egwene. Now, part of me also thinks this is one of the things where it's the second book of the series. Robert Jordan's probably still trying to pull things together and figure out what he was trying to do with the story. But it's not too out of place for him to take out if he runs a different direction with it. But essentially, that's this strange concept where he's able to tell vaguely, like, hey, something dangerous is going on. I need to make sure these people are okay because they're close to me and dear to me and they need to get taken care of. And it also kind of think pushes out kind of like a prophecy that's an artificial prophecy that's basically saying, like, these people down here are important to you. And if you do not protect them, 
the outcome could end poorly. But, again, that could be just speculation on my part. It could be that RJ had a thing he was trying. But it goes a different direction. I'm not sure exactly. But, Ingtar all of a sudden just says, you know, one man could hold 50 here. And there's these two stables are really close together with barely room for the pair of them to stand side by side. And it's like, eh, one man holding 50 at a narrow passage. Not a bad way to die. Songs have been made about less. And Rand's like, ah, there's no need for that. At least I hope. And then all of a sudden in the town, a rooftop just blows up. It's like, oh, how am I going to get back in here? I have to reach her or them. He's not really sure because all he knows is that, you know, Egwene's there. And he shakes his head, peeks around the corner, but they're getting close. The Shanshan are getting closer. And Ingtar's this, whew, this is, this is a serious one. So I'm going to read this. I never knew what he was going to do. Ingtar said softly, as if talking to himself. He had his sword out testing the edge with his thumb. A pale little man you didn't seem to really notice, even when you were looking at him. Take him inside Faldara, I was told, inside the fortress. I did not want to, but I had to do it. You understand? I had to. I never knew what he intended until he shot that arrow. I still don't know if it was meant for the Amarlin or for you. Rand felt a chill. He stared at Ingtar. What are you saying? He whispered. Studying his blade, Ingtar did not seem to hear. Humankind is being swept away everywhere. Nations fail and vanish. Dark friends are everywhere. And none of these southern Southlanders seem to notice or care. We fight to hold the borderlands to keep them safe in their houses. And every year, despite all we can do, the blight advances. And these Southlanders think Trollocs are myths and Merdral a Gleeman's tale. He frowned and shook his head. It seemed the only way. We would be destroyed for nothing, defending people who do not even know or care. It seemed logical. Why should we be destroyed for them when we could make our own peace? Better the shadow, I thought, than useless oblivion, like Caroline or Hardin, or... It seemed so logical then. Rand grabbed Ingtar's lapels. You aren't making any sense. He can't mean what he's saying. He can't. Say it plain. Whatever you mean. You are talking crazy. For the first time, Ingtar looked at Rand. His eyes shone with unshed tears. You are a better man than I. Shepherd or Lord. A better man. The prophecy says, Let who sounds me think not of glory, but only salvation. It was my salvation I was thinking of. I would sound the horn and lead the heroes of the ages against Sheol Ghul. Surely that would be enough to save me. No man can walk so long in the shadow that he cannot come again to the light. That is what they say. Surely that would be enough to wash away what I have done. And Ben. Oh, light, Ingtar. Rand released his hold on the other man and sagged back against the stable wall. I think. I think wanting to is enough. I think all you have to do is stop being one of them. Ingtar flinched as if Rand had said it out loud. Dark friend. Rand, when Varen brought us here with the portal stone, 
I... I lived other lives. Sometimes I held the horn, but I never sounded it. I tried to escape what I'd become, but I never did. Always there was something else required of me. Always something worse than the last. Until I was... You were ready to give up. Give it up. To save a friend. Think not of glory. Oh, light. Help me. Rand did not know what to say. It was as if Egwene had told him she had murdered children. Too horrible to be believed. Too horrible for anyone to admit to it unless it was true. Too horrible. After a time, Ingtar spoke f again, firmly. There has to be a price, Rand. There's always a price. Perhaps I can pay it here. Ingtar, I... It is every man's right, Rand, to choose when to sheathe the sword. Even one like me. Wow! If you're a first-time reader, that should have just blown your mind. And if you're a veteran reader, that still blows your mind. It's a very powerful, crazy few paragraphs. Like, imagine being that person up in the Borderlands and all the Southlanders just literally not caring about what goes up in the Borderlands. Like, they know the Borderlands exist. They know why the Borderlands exist. But they don't believe that the reason the Borderlands exist is the reason that they exist. They don't believe that the Blight's coming this direction. They don't believe that Trollocs exist. They don't believe Murdrol exists. They don't believe any of that stuff. And you spend your entire life fighting and fighting and fighting to keep your own people safe. To be your allies' people safe. Always fighting. Always, always, always. Constantly against this enemy that seems to never end and seems to try to push on forward into you always tired and always fighting and eventually gets tired of fighting and the more you think about the Southlanders not caring or whatever has quite an impact on you but this obviously is all a shock to Rand because why wouldn't it be he has no think that a, a, a lord of House Shinawa of Shinar would be a dark friend. I mean, everyone knows that there were lords that were dark friends and people conspired with dark friends and stuff like that in the hierarchy. And Malkier is the same way. And it's not impossible to assume. But to think of somebody like that as trying to find the horn, which, you know, dark friends have. So it doesn't make sense, right? But Ingtar's like, I've. I've been this person, this man cast out of the light for so long. And I was hoping, you know, to instead of Shinar turning into Caroline or Caroline or Harden, which I believe were both uh, countries that eventually got, I don't know if it was wiped out or torn apart, but. <laughs> He's like, well, it seemed logical to, you know, join the one side, right? But he gives this very honest, like, I, I'm trying, I've been trying to get out of the shadow and back into the light. I made a mistake a long time ago and I'm trying to rectify it. I'm trying to get back to where I can, you know, be out of the reach or the coverage of the Dark One. And you could tell he's kind of made up his mind because he's he's telling all this stuff. If he if he thought he was gonna get out alive, I doubt he would say anything. Maybe maybe he would have, but it'd be unlikely. So the fact that he's saying all this means one thing, and you can probably guess where this is going. And the whole part of the very last line of it is every man's right, Rand, to choose when to she the sword. 
even one like me. I think out of this entire book, that's probably the most powerful phrase in the entirety of the book. Personal feeling, personal opinion. You may disagree, but man, that's a punch to the gut. Someone who you call friend, who looks up to you, who treats you like something you're definitely not, like a lord, and is confused by you and your culture, is confused by everything, but is just constantly surprised by you, and you become very close friends with them, and then you find out they're the very thing you're supposed to be fighting. Like, imagine that punch to the gut. But after saying this phrase, you know, even one like me, Hiran comes running down the alley before Rand could really respond to it. He's like, well, the patrol turned aside down to the town. They seem to be gathering down there. Matt and Perrin went on. And he takes a look down the street and pulls back. He's like, well, we better do the same. Well, Lord Ingtar, Lord Ran. Those bug-headed Shawn are almost here. And I'm thinking, like, why did you guys ever stop running? <laughs> like, you should have taken off and not looked back twice. Ingtar's like, Go, Rand. Take the horn where it belongs. I always knew the Amarlin should have given you the charge, but all I ever wanted was to keep Shinar whole, to keep us from being swept away and forgotten. And he you know, turns to face the street and doesn't look at Rand or Huron again. Whew, this, is a, this is a powerful part, <laughs> I gotta say. I'm gonna read this next part just due to the fact that it gets emotional. I know, Ingtar. Rand drew a deep breath. The light shine on you, Lord Ingtar of House Shinoa, and may you shelter in the palm of the Creator's hand. He touched Ingtar's shoulder. Last embrace of the mother welcome you home. Huron gasped. Like, man, the amount of people who have died in this book, that one right there hits you in the feels. And Yurin's <laughs> finally catching on to what's going on. And the only response, really, Ingtar softly says, thank you. And it seems, because Rand has his hand on his shoulder, that all the tension seems to go out of him. And it seems like the first time since the Night of the Trolloc raided on Faldara, he stood as he had when Rand first saw him, confident and relaxed. Content. And Rand turns away from Ingtar and, you know, sees Huron staring at him at both of them and Rand's just like it's time for us to go and of course Huron's like but but Lord Ingtar and Rand just responds sharply does what he has to but we go Huron nods and Rand trots after him and Rand could hear the steady tread of the Sean Chen's boots now he did not look back I don't know how Michael Kramer and Kate Redding could possibly do this without just bursting into tears. <laughs> I'm not a very emotional person, but man, that just tightened my throat and it just, it's a whole one thing to just read it. But to say it out loud, to take the persona of a character like Ingtar and Ran in this situation and just play it out. And if you really, really, really want to, to like feel it. Like, finish the book. Come back to this this chapter, this couple pages, the very end of this chapter. Read it and do it in the voices of the characters and do it with all that stuff. Like, feel the scene. It's a lot of weight. And Land's words of, you know, death is lighter than a feather, duty heavier than a mountain. 
it brings a whole other meaning to the table. Like, this is a very well done goodbye. And it's also a massive cliffhanger and holy crap. Blood and ashes. Oh, it really gets you in the feels. But that's it for the chapter. Um, it's kind of hard to follow that kind of a ending, but I gotta say, man, it it hits you hard at that end. And I did my prep and everything, and it, no amount of prep can like really put you into the moment where you say that stuff, and it just hits you in the gut. Oh, it was great. And I'm going to go eat a bunch of ice cream and cuddle up in a corner and cry because, oh my gosh, it felt good. But it felt so sad at the same time. <laughs> oh, goodness. Anyway, sorry about getting emotional and sentimental. It's not my usual MO. <laughs> um, but man, sometimes it's like watching Lord of the Rings. You just can't help but cry at the end. Like the most stoic man, Lan himself, would snivel and cry watching the end of the Lord of the Rings. Oh, anyway. So, what did you guys think? It's, uh... I'm not the greatest performer. Um, I like to think I am, but I'm really not. Uh, but I did find it fun. And I, I did think that a lot of things happen in this chapter. And it's about to get chaotic. And we're like, I think we have, what? Yeah, we got chapter 47, 48, 49, and 50. And 50's like a single page. Um, so we're like right on the tip of it. And if you feel like reading the glossary, power to you. Not everybody likes to do that, but that's a lot of pages of the glossary. It's like 20-some pages. I think it's 26 pages, maybe? Probably 26 pages of glossary. That's a lot of glossary. <laughs> Um, I will not be going through the glossary, although maybe after the podcast is over with, I'll go through each of the book's glossaries and just read everything through. Probably should have thought of that before. Like I said, not exactly. I'm not a professional in this regard, but I like to think I am. Obviously. Ah, just a passion project, guys. But yeah, what did you guys think? How did this affect you? Did it affect you at all? You might not care about Ingtar. You might not even care about Rand at this point. But what what were your thoughts? What were your feelings? How did you think this went down? What do you think of Robert Jordan's writing? Is it catching up to you yet? <laughs> the first book didn't get you. Did this one start getting you? Because it gets better or worse, depending on how you look at it. Um, in a good way, obviously. But yeah. Uh, I'd love to hear from you guys and see what your thoughts are and anything like that. Feel free to reach me on Facebook, which is just Tales of Red Arm, or on Twitter, at Tales of Red Arm. You can DM me or just comment on the post, anything of that nature. I'd love to hear what you guys have to say or your thoughts, any emotions, anything like that. Um, you can also reach me at I just Gmail, which is talesofaredarm at gmail.com. I'd love to know what you guys think. So, uh, next episode, we will be back with chapter 47. And I'm pretty sure it's about to get real. <laughs> and it's, it's really getting real. Tensions are rising. This is going to be a cliffhanger book. Just telling you that right now. It's going to be great. But anyway, thanks again for hanging out, guys. And I look forward to entertaining you another episode, another chapter, another book. Thanks for hanging out. And we'll talk to you again next time. Until then. All night and dance all day, and on the girls will spend our pay. And when we're done, then we'll away to dance with Jack of the Shadows. We'll toss the dice however they fall, and struggle the girls be they short or tall. And follow young Matt wherever he goes to dance with Jack of the Shadows. We'll toss the dice however they fall, and struggle the girls be they short or tall. Then follow Lord Matt wherever he calls to dance with Jack of the Shadows.
We'll, we'll give, give a yell with a bloody curse and hog the maids that could be worse. Let's ride away with the dark woods first to dance with Jack of the Shadows. Yeah. <laughs>